Good morning, good evening, or good afternoon, whatever time you may be listening, and welcome to the Whispering GM Podcast. What's that? I haven't subscribed to no Whispering GM. Uh, No, but now you have. Surprise! (laughs) Well, note this, if you uh, did not recognize my voice, my name is Taylor of the Clericsware Ringmail uh, media empire, as uh, Jason over at Nerds Variety Cast would put it, and I'm doing a little bit of rebranding. As I had put on the blog a couple weeks back, I wanted to shake things up because I feel like the blog and the podcast are kind of conflating. So, the a podcast, especially in this context, is almost social media. It's very conversational, um, and listeners can interact with the host, the host can interact with the listeners, and the content itself is ephemeral. I can count on one hand the number of people I know who go back and re-listen to stuff they've heard on a podcast. By contrast, I remember in an interview uh, where Jeff of Jeff's Game Blog mentioned he still gets a thousand hits a day or more, even though he's not posting remotely as much as he used to. People are coming back, people are reusing the material, That specifically that party like it's 999 post where carousing, he talks about carousing, people hit that up all the time, that's a concept. Or Trollsmith with his uh, shields and sundering, I can't imagine how many hits he gets on that because it's an enduring concept. Now, do blogs have comment sections? Yes, and they used to be pretty active, and some blogs they still are. Look over at uh, Grognardia. Uh, he gets comments on every post he makes. A wash of them, usually, but thinking about what kind of content I tend to post, I mean, I'm just scrolling down the list now. There's some tables, uh, some reviews. The reviews do get some interaction uh, and adventures. The type of content I produce is different. The type of content that I tend to put out or try to put out on the blog is perennial, is perpetual. The generator for special rooms, for example, that was designed to be useful for myself originally, and then I shared it out, and hopefully it's useful for you. And because of the difference in content type, it just seems like a good idea to keep the two concepts separate. Two products in the Clericsware Ringmail portfolio. The second reason I wanted to shake things up a little bit, search engine optimization. I can't find my own blog on Google anymore. That's one of the reasons I've started including a link back to the blog in our uh, show notes section because I had absolutely no idea how aggressively Spotify, Anchor was going to, or was an Apple and all the other podcatchers were going to advertise for me. And that's awesome. I appreciate that. But it's kind of obfuscating. I, I learned recently that there are people who listen who don't know I have a blog. I do. Go to the blog. If I mean, if you like the conversation stuff, stick around. I love talking with you. Uh, alternatively, if you also want some useful stuff, uh, BX adventures, some weird chainmail st- stuff, occasionally inspirational reading, head to the blog. I've got all of that stuff there. I've got hundreds of posts uh, waiting for you, and hopefully hundreds more to come. As I have told 
some folks on uh, Discord, I think it was before, the original working title for the podcast was going to be Save Versus Traffic, because I was doing most of it on my commute. Now, I got a new job since then. I work primarily from home, so I'm not commuting as much, but hey, do you, the listener, like the ring of Save Versus Traffic uh, better than Whispers? <laughs> if so, call in, let me know, ping me. Uh, I'll uh, rebrand a second time next episode, who knows. But where, wh- so why Whispering GM? Well, as you may have heard in the last episode, that's kind of a nickname I've had been uh, rolling around with for a while. It was given to me by my buddy Jason Hobbs over at the Gamerhood, and the joke being, whenever I get to run or play in a game, it's usually late at night after my kids are in bed, and because I'm the only one awake, have to whisper into the mic. And coincidentally, that's why a lot of these home segments uh, that are not recorded in the car are in this kind of smooth ASMR voice that I've got going on here trying not to wake anybody up. With that in mind, I figured I'd run with it, and uh, we'll see where we go in terms of the sound effects. Bear with me, if you'd be so kind. I appreciate your patience. I'm the same old Taylor, same old dog, just newly whispers as well. That's enough State of the Union. Uh, It's clocking in at five minutes so far, longest intro I've ever done. Today's topic, rules light or rules heavy. Do you really prefer one or the other, or do you prefer how it rolls at the table? Listen on and find out. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back. Today, I was listening on my little podcatcher to an episode of the Monsters and Treasure podcast by Daniel Norton and K.R. King. King, I think, is your surname, but whether it is or isn't, you are a king to me, buddy, because that episode was talking a little bit about rules. think it was more focused. I will link it in the show notes so my listeners can make the decision for themselves. But one of the things that they were talking about is crunch. How much rule do you need? How many rules do you need? It got me thinking. When we are talking about rules heavy versus rules light, more rules, fewer rules, more procedures, fewer procedures, while relevant, Is that really the correct question we should be asking? First, I want to talk a little bit about complexity. Regardless of our definitions of rules heavy and rules light, or our individual qualifications that we apply to a given game to categorize it as rules heavy or rules light in our own lexicon, I think we can all agree that some games are more complicated than others. Just off the top, the Holmes basic set is less complicated than Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. 
while the core of the game, uh, roll d20, determine if you hit, that kind of that kind of stuff, that's all there. There is more to the AD&D game than there is to the Holmes game. The same theory applies to the basic sets. The same statement could apply to any of the basic sets. They're designed to be less intimidating, fewer crunchy, fewer crunchy pieces. For a player coming in to a lighter game, there's going to be less of a barrier to entry. For a fledgling referee who's trying to run a new game, a game with fewer rules is going to be a little easier to catch on to and you'll bring it to the table a little faster. However, we then have a caveat thrown into that statement. What about games where more of the rules are aimed at the referee? Consider TSR era D&D versus WotC era D&D. With the coming of 3rd edition, a great number of rules were transitioned into player facing. There were, they were intended to bind the referee and to make it more of a calculable playing field. By comparison, the TSR editions were designed to focus the player more on the what is my character doing aspect of it, and uh, uh, most of the rules, the borderline the entire DNG, as uh, authored by our great grandfather Gygax, was um, penned with the intention that the dungeon master should read it. It's right in the front of the book, tongue in cheek. If your players try to read this book, put them to death. In that sense, I, as a new player coming to an AD&D game, might have the same degree of barrier to entry that I, as a player, might come to Holmes. Now, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. There is more to AD&D than there is to Holmes. Uh, that is just considering the player's handbook. But the point is, there is not so much of a difference from the perspective of the player as there would have been if I were to compare Holmes to 3rd edition, 4th edition where the players have a lot more of the system that they have to think about in order to play their characters. For a referee, I'm still going to have to learn the system in order to play it for my players, so I'm still going to bring the heavier game uh, or the ref heavier game to the table a little slower, or am I? There's nothing preventing me from running it wrong and then correcting as we go, looking up the rules as we need them and applying them to the game as we go. That's why we invent DM screens. We put the stuff that's more relevant to our experience, the stuff that we need to look up, onto a piece of paper between us and the players so that we don't have to look it up. It's, it's an expedient factor for stuff that would be useful in play. But Og, I'm confused. Why then are we talking about the complexity of the game if there are caveats, tricks, and other mnemonics to prevent the complexity or lack of complexity from influencing how we bring a game to the table? Because I think the bigger factor is beyond complexity. While it is true that a bigger book may present a bigger intimidation factor, I submit 
that it is less important how big the book is, how many rules we are having to follow, compared to how smoothly those rules run at the table. A game that has a lot of rules and procedures, but that flows smoothly and plays quickly at the table is going to come off as a better experience than a simple game that clunks along the way. Talking less about complexity and more about flow, we can do a comparison in experience. First, I would bring to the table an experience I had a few years ago playing Adventurer Conqueror King. Now, as my listeners are going to know, the Adventurer Conqueror King system is known for having a great deal of crunch under the covers. There, there was a lot of work done on that system to produce a believable, a verisimilitudinous uh, wor uh, world milieu in which your game can take place. For reference, the referee running the game that I was talking about, he had a Google spreadsheet that had formulas inlaid all over it that were driven by date so that the town market would dynamically change what it had in it based on moving the movement of the world around it. That kind of stuff, and while this would have been my first experience with Adventurer Conqueror King, the point is the system has pieces in it that are intended to support that kind of play. The ref would run Necrotic Gnomes a Hole in the Oak. We would go into the, the hole uh, and I'm, I'm trying not to do too many spoilers, but then we found a treasure room. There's a pit with hazards at the bottom, and there's treasure on the other side. So how do we get across? Well, we said we we looked in our inventory. We thought about what are we going to use. We've thought about jumping across, but the, the, we weren't sure we wanted to do that because of the uh, span. So we've ended up using a combination of iron spikes and a floating disc spell to get across that challenge. Further, we uh, would eventually come into a f set of gnomes that, while initially friendly, uh, we managed to piss off, and so we got into a fairly heated combat with them, where we ended up blockading ourselves and uh, using the terrain to limit their scope of numbers and fight our way out. The expenditure of the spell resource and the use of the iron spikes getting across that hazard, that was reminiscent of how you might use the same resource. You might manage your same pool in basic or homes. Similarly, the while the rule is a little different, um, the combat procedure, the movements, the attacks, that was all very, again, reminiscent of basic. It flowed similar. We did not hang up on any surprises going along the way. So while there is complexity in the game, it's aimed at a different aspect of the game. There's preparation. 
there is out of table activity so that each of the different races have different classes available to them and once you've picked your class you have different professions proficiencies i forgive me i'm in the car i forget what they're called that you have that you can pick from that influence one another but that work is outside of the table that time is spent independently and as a byproduct, or you can do it together too if, if you're into that i've been in groups that built characters together before which is not a bad idea I guess but the main thing about that is that when you are in the dungeon when you are on the campaign then the game focuses on the campaign and the play proceeds smoothly the complexities don't rear their head in such a way during play as to slow down the resolution roll dice thing happens go and as such you keep immersion a bit better as such you keep can, uh, momentum a bit better and as a whole the experience in my per, in my opinion is better next we'll talk about a game that I have run a fair bit of uh, albeit not recently dungeon crawl classics I picked up Dungeon Crawl Classics in response to a bunch of people telling me that only false OSR enthusiasts played it and that it was a terrible game, and then ran it for about a year. The core rulebook of DCC is fairly thick, uh, but its primary focus is on the character classes themselves. It omits uh, dungeoneering procedures, it omits world building elements, and there are supplemental resources you can pick up, Lankmar comes to mind, a recent one, that contain more setting specific stuff, uh, and there's a tremendous amount of community stuff as well, but you get that external to the core rules. Our party had most of the classes represented. We had a fighter uh, who was probably our or warrior, I think it's called. Uh, he was probably our simplest character, so he, we, I shipwrecked them day one, uh, and that was how we started our game, and they were seeking shelter from a storm that had wrecked the ship in a dungeon nearby, and uh, so they, they immediately get into a trap, which they overcome through player ingenuity, that was, that was pretty awesome, but shortly thereafter they ran into some undead that they did combat with. So our fighter, which I mentioned, is our most simple character. He rolls to hit. Uh, he rolls damage. Sounds fair so far, but he also has the added deed die. The deed, which I think you can roll that to perform a certain deed, or you can use it to uh, add damage or to hit. Uh, if the deed succeeds, then you have to adjudicate what happens. Um, in this case, there were, there were spikes on the wall, and he attempted a deed to uh, launch one of the enemies into the spikes in hopes of immobilizing them. Uh, that was a cool idea. Uh, I forget how it turned out. But then, uh, when he rolls to hit, he rolls a critical. Oh, very lucky shot. So now we consult what is the die he rolls on uh, for his critical hit, okay, we've got that die. Now, what does a uh, fighting man level one, What, which of the critical hit tables do we roll on? We picked, the, we found the table, rolled on it, got an effect. 
he is the simplest character and on one attack we've made four separate lookups we've involved three places in the, the rule book and that's just his turn outside of combat uh, outside of game there are also some complexities to be experienced the thief class you pick based on your alignment different skills that you're going to be better at so that's a there's an element of choice there that you have to consider uh, similarly with um, magic users there is a mercurial aspect to magic where when you cast a spell there's going to be a different weird effect um, and that's out that complexity is outside of the table however fast forward do we have a, a magic user come into the party he wants to cast a spell. We're, we're outside, this is a month or two later, we're outside a tower. The tower, uh, we're investigating to see what uh, might have happened to its occupants, where something might have gone missing. Um, it's, on, it's a lighthouse on the outskirts of town, if I remember correctly, and he goes to cast a spell. First, we have to check his mercurial effect. Uh, what does that do? There's a there, he has pre-generated what does this spell have does it dump cockroaches out of my arms or something weird and so we, we resolve this initial effect now he rolls uh, to cast the spell he decides whether or not he needs to burn he, do, he does not use the spell burn because we're not in combat we're just using it as sort of a reconnaissance and then we roll to see what the effect of the spell is based he applies his caster level we compare it on the spell chart and uh, lo and behold, here's our, here is our effect, our, and we roll the duration, and we, he now has reconnoitered the space. How many dice did we just roll to cast a single spell? Now, like I said, I enjoy playing DCC. However, the advice I always give is it's very difficult to play DCC without the Crawler app. I always tell prospective DCC players and, and judges get the app because it just makes the game better. If you don't have the app, which we did which we did for subsequent sessions, I was brought up to the app by some friends who had played the game before. If we did not have the app, we would be performing a lot of page flipping and a lot of dice rolling. And but with the app, it's right off the cuff. So uh, we in order to produce the same degree of rapidity in order to produce the same ease and facility of flow at the table that Axe has, then you need to have technological intervention on the part of DCC. Is DCC a bad game? No, but the DCC flows slower. DCC plays clunkier than does acts. It's a simple fact of the experience. Knowing that, knowing that the rules for both of those systems may be comparable in terms of the page count complexity, the played table experience, totally different. And that's the argument I'm making. From here, I'd like to turn the mic over to you, listeners. Have you had smooth experiences with complex systems? Have you had clunky experiences with simple ones? 
How does your system of choice that you play in or run fall onto the spectrum? I'm very interested in your experiences and hopefully we're treading some new ground together. Hmm. Well, that was different. Not exactly sure that I was able to capture the fantasy vibe with those new sound effects, but the important part is some things change and some things stay the same. One thing that has stayed the same is the contributions of listeners like you. So, without delay, let's jump into some calls. Hey, David, Ricardo here, a uh, long-time worker of the OSR community, but I rarely post anything. However, the min-maxing thing kind of ruffles my feathers. Mostly because where I live in Europe, uh, Dungeons and Dragons wasn't really big back in the 80s and maybe 90s. Um, so what you do have is a lot of new people that play 5e. And 5e is, as I usually call it, the world's best or biggest uh, tabletop video game that has ever been created. And... Um, it's all about min-maxing. Like the the game, you, people usually say the mechanics aren't aren't super hard, and they aren't. But there's so much, so many layers of stuff that's been added on top. And the, the thing I love about the OSR is that most games are like super rules light, because the game isn't about your character in specific. It's about their actions at the table, and the numbers on the sheet really don't mean much. Mm-hmm. What you are experiencing is known as the Watsi effect. It's a design paradigm around the game that Watsi has versus what the design paradigm was for the old TSR editions and how the OSR designs games to date. Namely, the big claim to fame that Watsi had prior to Dungeons and Dragons, and based on their bottom line, they don't publish these numbers, but we all secretly know, their claim to fame is Magic the Gathering. In Magic the Gathering, there's a lot of meta involved. There's a lot of thought that goes into deck building, how do the cards interact with each other, planning for certain contingencies, and that's how they approached the Dungeons and Dragons game as well. How can you build your character different options, different things, and as new splat books, some booster packs for the D&D game came out, how do you combine these into more effective ways to defeat the challenges you had before? Where with the TSR editions, especially the Gygaxian TSR editions, it was exactly as you said, a focus on the game. Some systems are more complex than others, but regardless, like I kind of talked about for this whole episode, actually, the point of the game is on the adventure, and I'm, that's a good place to be. And my my whole issue with 5e is that the, the game promotes min-maxing and all these theory crafting instead of actually playing the game, uh, which is something I love about you know the OSR. And I don't have nearly as much experience with OSR games as I would like, because as I said, it's very hard to find in-person game where I live and I haven't played online all that much. You are in luck. We are in the heyday of online play as far as I can tell, even in time zones that don't flush with the US. But usually what you see in terms of min-maxing is, yeah, maybe you get lucky with some rolls when you make your character and then maybe you can get this kind of magic item or that kind of, of magic item, but it's never wholly about just numbers and numbers and numbers. You know, it's 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 what happens at the table, how you solve issues, what's in your backpack, and how you know how uh, a bar of soap and a coil of rope is going to save the day. 
And that's what I, uh, and that's why I think like min-maxing isn't so, so big in the OSR, to be honest. Rob C., if you are listening and ever rebrand your podcast, there's your new tagline. Brought the soap and a coil of rope. But back to you, Ricardo, the, what you're talking about there, that player skill, that creative, out-of-the-box thinking, that's my favorite part of the game, too. And I suspect, and uh, this may be what you're hinting at, I suspect that, a, that games and movements which reinforce mechanically creative thinking, that's going to attract people whose outside-the-box experience is what they're driving on. So if that hunch is right, hopefully the OSR is like a moth light on the patio, or the opposite, I guess, <laughs> for, uh, for min-max type folks. What's the opposite of uh, min-max? Max minners? Mm, that, yeah, that doesn't work. I'll have to think on that one. Thank you, my man, for calling in. I am excited that you came out of the lurk and into the spotlight. Hey, Taylor, Jason here. Enjoyed the latest episode. I do have to say maps, at least in Gygaxian D&D, so, and I'm going to reference Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, first edition, maps are physical artifacts that you very definitely could take away from the players. And it's evidence right in the books, so I'm not, people don't have to play this way, but to deny it is to deny the words on the page. Yep, it absolutely is. And I want to say it's not just AD&D, because I swear I've seen item saving throws somewhere before. And if items have saving throws, then by definition, that means they must have something to save against. And that is one of the things that I had in mind while I was running that game. So it was kind of, you know, figuring it out. Is Do I encourage the behavior by letting him keep it, or do I take it away? Mm. And yeah, moot point, fortunately, because they did, they went back in and recovered the body. Page 102 of the player's handbook, you know, it talks about, you know, distance. You move so slow in the dungeon because you are mapping, right? It, you know, it specifies that. Movement, the movement distance in the dungeon is one inch to, to 10 feet over a turn of 10 minutes duration while exploration and mapping are in progress. And then it even talks about if you're following a known route or map, the movement rate is five times faster. That I did not know. I need to brush up on my AD&D. You know, further down in movement in the cities. Um, you know, it talks about movement in the city. This assumes no map is being made. Mapping takes ten times as long. Then it talks about no mapping is possible when a party is moving at a fast speed, such as pursued or pursuing. Light must be available to make or read a map. Infravision is not suitable for such circumstances. Um, in the DMG, you know, it talks about how base movement, to do, 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 where are we at here? Um, you know, it talks about you're moving so slow, ninety, typically about 90 feet in 10 minutes, because observation, map-making, and searching take considerable amount of time, right? And then that's on page 96. You know, also on page 96, it talks about how traveling along a corridor and mapping its length takes one turn per 90 feet, assuming the base moon of 9 inches, Things like that. Um, 
When we look at page 68, it explains that if they're fleeing, then the party cannot map while they flee. And specifically, it says not to give them distances or cardinal directions while they're fleeing so they can't make a map. That I have done by the book. And I'll tell you, it adds uh, so much when you're running away. Uh, coming down a corridor saying 10, 20, 30 feet, forks to the left, and a door lies ahead of you. That sort of, this implies this ponderousness. It implies this weight and this anticipation where, by comparison, if you have, you know, troglodytes on your tail, you sp uh, sprinting ahead, corridor left, door ahead, what do you do? And suddenly there's a snap decision involved and it totally changes the tone of the encounter. So the way you, as the referee or dungeon master, present that information to the player, that huge impact on the tone of the experience. Coincidental? Intentional? Depends probably on your interpretation of how uh, good a rules designer Gygax was. So, I mean, and, and those are just some of the examples in there. Maps are physical. The maps the, char the player makes are considered the map the, the character's making. And if they're not making a map, then you shouldn't be letting the player make a map. Um, and I know that may be a controversial opinion, but the, you know, the game, the base movement rates, all that are built around the idea that the characters are mapping, which interestingly enough means if your party is all, you know, semi-humans and they're trying to do the dungeon by infravision, then don't let them map because they can't see the map. So there you go. If they're not using a torch, they can't map. So your party of dwarves without a torch aren't making maps. It's that simple. So, I, you know, not everybody's going to agree with that. Not everybody's going to like that. But that, and you can house rule that in your game, but understand you're not playing the game as designed. Refing question. If you were running the game, Jason, would you let that dwarf party count paces? So instead of telling them they'd gone 10, 20 feet, you could tell them they took 30, 40 steps. And would you allow them to do that? not trying to stir the pot or advocate for the devil or anything like that. And thinking about it, you'd still have the issue that the infravision would not see the paper. So you'd have to do the body cavity ink that I joked about in a previous episode. But thought experiment. Could you count paces instead of feet? So as a follow-up, I do think it's fair. And I looked in BX. BX also assumes mapping is happening. So I was not crazy 30 or 40 seconds ago. I did hear that happening. Though, does BX give the advice to remove the map? So I do think it's totally fair to take away a player's map if they're captured. They're hit by a fireball, the player survives, and the map or the backpack or whatever fails the saving throw. I, I think that's totally fair to take away the player map. If they have other things written on their map, then you can take it and you can copy those things and give it back to them on a piece of scrap paper take a picture of it, then scribble out the map area and text it to them? Or, you know, and just in the future, tell them, hey, don't put those kind of things on your map. You, you know, the kind of things that should be on your map are layers and monsters and treasures and stuff, but they shouldn't be. So, 
those things, you wouldn't get back to them. Notes that would actually be on the real map. But if they're making role-play notes, oh, yeah, the king's name is this, then they want to put that somewhere else. Brainstorming a player solution to this? One of those two-tone notebooks, one that's a graph on one side and lines on the other. You can write your role-play notes on the lines, and you draw your map on the map, and then it's no big deal to, to tear it out. Or you can read it to them off their, off their note. But, yeah, it's totally fair to take away their map if they would have lost it in-game. I don't see where that's any different than giving them a, a, scroll, ca a, a scroll case with a trap on it. <laughs> it is funny that you bring that up, because, as I promised, I did put that up to a poll. So, let's take a quick look at the numbers here on my phone. Quick context on this, um, I had been sort of joking when I said I would put it up on social media in the original recording of the message, but then when the episode came around, I said, hey, why not? So, I put up a poll in three separate places. Uh, first, I... Uh, indicated trapped scroll case. Is that A, epic player skill test, or B, grr, adversarial referee? And uh, I put that in Twitter, Discord, and Plebit. So, interestingly enough, we actually see a pretty strong trend in the... Ah, but I'm giving away the punchline. First, Twitter, we had a 75% uh, uh, said it was player skill. Uh, Discord, we had 100%. Uh, every single person who voted on Discord said that was a player skill moment. Uh, thank you, Jason and Josh, for voting on that. I put the poll in the thread. That was kind of foolish. I should have put that out in the public domain. But, <laughs> but anyway, the uh, then lastly, uh, where I actually expected us to have a little bit of pushback, um, Reddit... Uh, on the ODND sub, uh, there were 78% of respondents said it was kosher. Uh, on the BX DND sub, 100% again. Apparently, the BX is all about trap scroll cases. And uh, drumroll, the largest responder pool that I got was on the main uh, OSR subreddit, uh, where we had a whopping 70% 38 people said that yep that is a good test of player skill so how does that even out uh, we'll do a little drum roll here on the table 75% uh, uh, tallying up everybody who voted pro everybody who voted against Hobbs you have been vindicated because three in four of my listener pool at least believes that is a pretty cool test of your player skill among the most interesting observations that was made as part of the discussion uh, a couple people actually commented back and said what is the difference between a trapped scroll case and a cursed item so if I put a magic sword in the treasure and you pick it up and start throwing it around and it's cursed, all of a sudden your effectiveness is in the toilet. Worse with armor, because you think you're at that AC2, AC1, because you know your magic full plate. No, you are AC9 and you are deceived. So the big uh, comment there is, what is the difference between a trapped scroll case and a cursed item in the pool? 
same spirit. The scroll case was more immediate. Uh, we blew up some party members, uh, whereas the tra uh, cursed item would wait to rear its ugly head and mess with the party later on. But that was a very interesting observation. Thoughts, anyone? Uh, what is the di is there a difference, or is putting a trapped item in treasure just one more way to mess with your players? Hi Taylor, David here, uh, first time caller. I try to just to be a silent listener and uh, listen to the conversation between podcasts, uh, but I really wanted to respond to Travelling Jay's comment on mapping. Um, I think, speaking from my 1980s BX experience and comparing it to my current 5e experience, that mapping is for the player to experience the sensation of exploration. Uh, so it's very much an exploration game and 5e misses out on the exploration because they don't have a technique for creating that sensation for the player. I think it's much more about that than communication and I don't think it's a character tool, I think it's a player tool. Um, communication is a secondary feature, it's really hard to convey scale otherwise. Speaking as someone who is always the mapper, or a mapper, I've been in parties with multiple mappers before, but yeah, speaking as someone who always maps, that is exactly what I use it for. For some reason, my brain operates on a, uh, on a picture, and so I do so much better to visualize something if I'm looking at something instead of if I'm just thinking about it. And I catch a little bit of flack from time to time, or I hide from flack that I imagine might come my way <laughs> from the uh, folks who can do theater of mind. But yeah, one of the reasons that I like maps and uh, terrain or miniatures is because it makes it so much easier for me to visualize something uh, or to understand something by visualizing something. And in that sense, the, the player map is without question a tool for me to better understand where I am. That said, some people are better than I am. Well, that's not hard. <laughs> Some people are good to begin with at spatial recognition. So um, I told this story on Discord somewhere, I forget where, but the party that the mapper was in, he was mapping and one of my other players was not. And uh, one of the, uh, that other player mentioned that, okay, we... Uh, let's go back the way we came. And uh, I, being a smug little jerk, uh, said, I'm sorry, could you be more specific? I forgot the way you came. And without missing a beat, dude does not even look away, he's just like dead in my eyes. He goes, I will turn back north past the uh, concave sacrifice bowl uh, under to the secret door we came out of, and then that should come out the fireplace facing south. And that's precisely what my game master map said. <laughs> so he knew. He, he had that spatial recognition committed to memory, but uh, he is better at that than I am, and I miss gaming with him. And part two. Um, so this makes me think that there needs to be some way to recreate the experience for the player of exploring uh, without having to map. Um, virtual tabletop doesn't really seem to do the trick and the only thing I can think of is laying out a big business card sized sections of the 
the map, so like a, a, a miniaturized sort of version. Thinking back, a friend of mine used to do that. Well, he played with the 28mm miniatures. Whenever you were in one of his home games, one of the things they did before the first session is everybody would kind of hang out and paint their miniatures, so you'd have a painted miniature to play with. And he had puzzle piece looking dry erase uh, tiles. And so what he would always do is he would place the tile down whenever you were inside and then he would draw out the room and then you could keep you would move in okay we go up the hall and as you were moving the tiles behind you he would pick them up erase them and then put them back and he would have to that was a lot of redrawing on his part but it did essentially exactly what you were talking about there it corresponded to the vague illumination radius of the torchlight and it provided a spatial immersion without a player drawn map and that was very cool i was very disappointed i was in that was when i was in college and i was living on six hundred dollars a month uh, and i could not afford these awesome dry erase puzzle pieces desperately wanted them never got them ended up getting a dry or a wet erase mat i still have that somewhere around here but not quite the same because it does not have that infinite rollout ability that the uh puzzle piece style and they weren't actual puzzle pieces they were just kind of grooved so they would click together and stick if somebody bumped the table but i think y'all figured that out as i was talking the fun part was the infinite the infinite nature of it you could just keep placing them and keep going along with uh you along within your torchlight and thank you thank you for calling in david it's awesome to hear your voice uh, it's always exciting to get a voicemail i really enjoy uh your perspective and the perspective of the other callers and it's especially fun to get a call from a voice i haven't heard yet so hopefully it is the start of a continuing gaming relationship now having thought about this too in the absence of dry erase puzzle pieces you could technically pick up a card pack i've seen them card packs of map sections and whatever's in them is on the other side the next caller our good buddy daniel over at bandits keep has done that on his youtube channel uh, i'd have to link i'll link it in the show notes y'all can go find uh, and see how that works out for his solo play odnd where he has a uh, business card sized map chunks that come out uh, a chunk at a time in the meantime though daniel what do you think about maps as objects hey taylor daniel from keep calling in uh, lots of great episodes you've been putting out lately with all the call-ins of really enjoying it got to the end yes <laughs> um so now i'm giving you a new call uh, you guys were talking about maps, and I think it's really interesting because, uh, you know, again, it depends on the campaign and the system, but the hard line, I'm going to call it, the, that your caller had about maps aren't a real thing, I don't follow. I don't also follow a hard line that it is a real thing. It really just depends on the game. This is the way I look at it. I'll try to break it down real quick. If I'm running a mega dungeon where somebody is really acting as the mapper and they're drawing 10-foot squares and they're drawing perfect rooms and we're taking the time to do it, that is an actual object that they are drawing. And when they get back, you know, generally in Mega Dungeons, you delve in, then you come right back out at the end of the day. They go back to their location, they make a copy of it. So if you did lose a map on an, an adventure, you wouldn't have it to get out, you know, of the dungeon that day. But when you went back to your base camp, you would be able to then copy it again, because that just makes common sense. That's what they do. 
if I'm doing a, a smaller thing, it's not a mega dungeon, then usually I don't have an official mapper. And most people just keep like point crawl. Like I always do when I'm a player, whether I'm the mapper or not, you know, on the back of my character sheet, I just draw, you know, like a little square and I'm like, okay, this is where we're starting. We made a left, we made a right. I make little circles. I write orcs here or whatever. That's my character's memory for lack of a better word. So there's two different things there. And then of course, the third thing would be treasure maps, right? Which are actual objects, of course, in the game. Now, to the idea of, like, a fireball blows up and you lose your map and now you're screwed, yeah, I don't think that would be the case in most situations. I don't have a rule book in front of me, but the way that I always did saving throws, and I'm pretty sure this is correct, is that if you make your save, so does any object on your body. If you don't make it, then it can make a save, so it might be if you fail a saving throw against a fireball, then the map might be destroyed, but... That's if you fail the save, and it wouldn't be automatic. And if you fail saving a throw against a fireball, you probably have a lot of worse things to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> that is true, and you make a good point. We have to pay attention to the system first, and the saving throw second. Because whether you roll them or not may depend. And again, all the little point crawl stuff people have been jotting down on the character sheets, you'd still have. And when you went back to town, you could make a copy of the map you had so it's not like they've been delving for six months they you know something happens they lose their map and now they've lost all their work that that would almost never be the case with a smart party that kind of falls in with the player knowledge stuff that i think jason was talking about in a previous message i know you guys don't collude on messages before sending but having listened to this episode you know what i'm talking about so that kind of falls into the player not player the character knowledge so i may not have my detailed map but I do have the knowledge of, okay, this guy is the king's name, we met so-and-so in this room, and yeah, I could, I could see the point crawl uh, kind of idea. Like, I can vaguely remember a lot of different directions, whereas the exactitude of those directions may fill in uh, as I revisit, and in real life, that is. In any case, awesome episode. I look forward to hearing more from you. As I look forward to putting more out there. Thank you, sir, for the call-in and for the encouragement. And that wraps up this episode of the Whispering GM Podcast, an independently operated product released for educational and informative purposes under the Totally Steal This License. Some sound effects are retrieved from Mixkit.co and used under the Mixkit.co royalty-free music license. Others are retrieved from Pixabay, made available under the Creative Commons Zero. The music is raw power, licensed through playonloop.com. Parties interested in or with questions regarding the podcast are encouraged to reach out via the methods provided on the Clearing Square Ring Mail blog. Thank you for listening, and delve on.